Hey everyone, this is JD. Uh, this is just a note to say that we actually recorded this episode ooh, five months ago now. Uh, and then I got busy and didn't have time to edit or post it until today. Which would be fine, except that this is the episode where we spent an hour making our predictions about the future. Five months isn't a huge amount of history to have happen, so most of this is still valid. But if anything seems like, hey, you're missing this thing that's happened recently, probably because this was in August. Thanks. Welcome to the Trade Waiters. This is our 101st episode. 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> I should not, you know what? I should make that the title card. I should find a, a Dalmatian drawing. Huh? Yes. Anyway, so we're going to do something different this episode. Uh, first of all, we have a guest. Uh, Kathleen is rejoining us for episode 101. Yay! Hello! And then we didn't do shout-outs, so we're going to do double shout-outs this episode. We're going to do shout-outs at the start and shout-outs at the end. You'll have to cover your ears. You'll be shouted at so much. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Jam. Uh, I just... I... I, I asked us to do this because I was sad that I didn't get a chance to shout out Shot and Chaser by E.K. Weaver. And I think it's a really great example of, you know, an independent creator who's writing what they want to write in spite of it all. And they're doing an amazing job and it's a queer romance and for adults and quite fun. So TJ Animal slash S-A-C, Shot and Chaser. Check it out. Ooh. All right. Well, I'm... Jeff Ellis and I'm I just recently finished reading The Impending Blindness of Billy Scott which I know I'm super late to the party on this but that's a really great graphic novel and similar to what uh you said Jam this is like an artist who I felt was just doing telling a story the way they wanted to tell their story and not something for kids and not something that fits into like a usual traditional kind of comic genre so possibly possibly a future trade waiters we'll see uh, i'm gonna shout out a webcomic um which i'm not quite up to date on i'm bad at being up to date on webcomics but i've read most of it it's called yellow brick ramble and it is kind of a retelling although with generous interpretation of one of the land of oz books because apparently there's a million of those books and one of these books is maybe a trans story. And so uh, Daisy McGuire has sort of taken that and said, okay, no, this is what it is. And then is doing that on the internet now. Very cool. That sounds really interesting. Uh, I'm just like making a note that I need to put the impending blindness of Billy Scott on hold at the library. Uh, but a comic I recently read and enjoyed was uh, Thieves by Lucy Briand. It is a French comic. Uh, it does have an English translation. Uh, and it's about two sort of high school seniors and a bit of romance, uh, a bit of petty theft, and a bit of sort of like trying to right some wrongs. Uh, but I really enjoyed how it was told visually uh the characters are super lovely and it makes me want to be better at comics so that's my recommendation okay uh so like i said we're going to do something different this episode i am uh this is my crazy idea so if you all hate me by the end of the episode uh, it's my fault uh but i decided i wanted to put everyone on the spot to make some predictions about the future or to speculate about the future of comics based on the fact that we just finished reading Reinventing Comics, where Scott McCloud does something similar. Uh, so we've each picked a couple of topics for us to talk about. My plan is for us to start with the worst ones and end with the best ones, but of course we'll see how it goes. Like not everything is that black and white. Okay, and first topic we're gonna do is, I wanna talk a little bit about AI, which is the thing that everybody on the internet is talking about right now. 
so first I have a question for the, the three of you. Have any of you yet run across an AI comic? Uh, yeah. We've all seen AI art. Have you seen an AI comic? Yes. I, yes. It looks okay. stupid. Um, <laughs> it, it just like looks like a comic made by someone who has no actual passion or interest in comics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have come across one that was by a comic creator who was actually genuinely trying to see what could be oh, created if you had some comic literacy. Hmm. I no longer remember who it's by. I'm sorry. Uh, it also wasn't that inspired because like uh, the, the feedback of the comic creator was like it was frustrating and hard to try and get the AI to actually do what she was trying to get it and there was she had to like completely reorganize her story around the fact that there was no consistency so she had to like basically make it a series of vignettes and uh yeah so i have i have not i mean i guess i've maybe visually seen pictures of an ai comic in like some news article like this guy made a comic out of ai but i've not really been giving i'll be i'll be honest i've not been given ai at all the time of day i haven't i just like turn my nose up at it uh that being said i've been voraciously listening to multiple podcasts uh from experts uh warning everyone not to get sucked into the ai hype cycle and uh when photoshop launched their ai tools i made a point of uh pulling a bunch of images off the internet because I don't want my own stuff in their algorithms and uh, just doing some experiments and uh, yeah, it sucks. It really doesn't deliver on anything it promises except for like, if you want to just add about an inch of extra background around a photograph, it's really good at that. Um, <laughs> but if you think you can just like lasso someone, someone's head and say like, give them a new hairstyle, like, no, it's not, it looks weird. And like, it's just like what they're what they're proposing is possible versus what's actually possible is has a huge gulf between it. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. I've I've run across a few on Webtoon, like AI comics. The the ones mm -hmm. I've seen have been very short, only a few pages before the creator, I assume, gave up on it because of the exactly the problems you've all mentioned. It's nearly impossible to make your characters consistent. Like the one that stands out in my memory, I'm pretty sure whoever made that comic was prompting the AI with, give me a picture of Zendaya, because it sure looked like Zendaya. And like, even though the character changed from panel to panel, like that's basically, I think the only way you can get it to give you someone who kind of looks like the same person is to say, I want this actor, which is obviously a huge problem for copyright um because you are not allowed to just put someone's face in a comic without their permission so like the hype for ai is huge i am not a fan of it because a lot of the hype is just hype it uh, often requires like huge data sets most of which at least so far has been from stolen images or images where there's a contract that some or like a, a licensing agreement that someone signed where they didn't realize this is how it was going to be used. And the the predictions about what AI will be capable of in the future are not based on anything except speculation. Like uh, I think I've seen some of the same videos that uh, that Jeff has been watching. The there's a huge incentive amongst tech entrepreneurs to hype something up to get investors. Because that is where all their money comes from, is not from selling stuff, but from angel investors dumping a bunch of money in it and then making something fast and then getting out financially before the whole thing falls apart. We've seen that many times in the last few years and sure seems like AI is the latest of that. Um, I think it's important to underscore what you're saying. So a lot of the the thought leaders in this space have been very acutely and uh, emphasizing the fact that even these doom predictions, you know, the, the like AI extinction, even that is part of manufactured hype to try and oversell the power that this supposed algorithm has. Well, it is an algorithm, but the algorithm supposedly has. Yeah. Yeah. And this might be a good chance to sort of pitch a couple of videos that I thought were really good there to, because we've only got like five minutes to talk about this, but 
Adam Conover did an interview on YouTube called AI and Stochastic Parrots, which I thought was really good. He interviews some uh, actual, some of the like more important AI programmers who are anti-hype. And there's also an episode of the podcast Behind the Bastards called AI is Coming for Your Children, which is about the growth of AI generated picture books available on Amazon. So that's, I think, the the bigger danger to comics creators is not that AI is going to take all our jobs, but that AI generated comics have the potential to sort of dominate the limited shelf space in this supposedly unlimited internet uh, and that if you search for things, you're just going to get a bunch of AI generated crap and then give up on the idea of finding comics because you can't find anything good. It'll just be gray sludge. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a that's a real risk. And I think that's something that we're going to have to slog through. Yeah. So, I don't know that Amy to... Amazon is motivated to fix that for us. Yeah. The, the two researchers in that Adam Conover video are actually the two people that I've been following for a long time. And I really recommend... If this interests you and concerns you, follow them directly. Tim Nitgebrew and uh, Emily M. Bender. Uh, they're both PhDs. I want to say that while I am short negative on AI, I am long positive on it. And I will qualify that a bit. So you need to understand that I am someone who has been tracking this for a long time and testing it and being like involved at like an industry level. So I I feel like I have a really good understanding of its capabilities, you know, mechanisms and risks. Uh, It's capable of doing significant harm today. It is doing significant harm today. And I think this kind of sludge content the, uh, the mass manufacturing of sludge content in the attention economy is going to uh make some major bad waves however i'm long positive on the power of art i don't think that it will be able to make art obsolete as created by humans because i feel like this human to human connection of a transmission of an emotion and a message that is essential to it uh so i'm long positive on that <laughs> yeah and, and i will say that i i, I do see potential positive uses for AI. Like if Clip Studio came out with uh, an an app that would do my flatting for me, that would be amazing. They are getting there. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. And no one wants to flat. Flat, Flatting isn't art. Flatting, if, if you don't know, is the process of like, before you color an image digitally, you have to create flat areas to fill with color. And it's painstaking and I don't like it and that's why I, one of the reasons I color traditionally instead but if I if Clip Studio had that and I could just like push a button and all my flatting is done great but so they do have like an autofill where if you just kind of like messily put down the colors they do have an AI generated mm. thing which will then like fill in all your gaps for you okay. and basically like so if you put like a smear on the face then you're like, oh, okay, so all the face is this color. If you put a smear on the hair, all the hair is that color. And the other thing that they've come out with is uh, an auto lighting tool. So, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, so neither of those tools are great yet. But I do think that you know they are a step in the direction where it's like, for example, if you need to churn out a ton of concept art or you know, whatever, 50 promotional images, it might be something that could give you a leg up. Yeah, yeah, there's not tech billionaires investing heavily in flatting though (laughs) all right uh we gotta move on um next topic is fragmentation doesn't equal discoverability yeah so i think that's that's me and this this is my short-term negative uh prediction and i will say that it's another thing that i'm long-term positive on but with a caveat so it was inspired by the death of comicsology um, and kind of, yeah, you know, the, the implosion of social media, the, the walled gardening of social media, I feel like the, the decline of blogs, the decline of comics journalism, 
a lot of the infrastructure that was supporting comics networking, comics discoverability, cross-promotion, a lot of those things have gone away. And especially in the terms of the marketplace. We're now in a spot where if you want to buy a comic, it's quite challenging. <laughs> it's difficult. Like you can buy it on Amazon, but their Amazon isn't really great. They basically like completely gutted the comicsology infrastructure. It is like frustrating now to try and buy a comic. The different publishers, they're all over the board about whether or not you can buy a digital comic. The formatting is completely a mess. You know, it's something that should be very easy at this point. We went through a period of time where it was hard to sell a PDF. Now it's easy, but I think this fragmentation is uh, going to affect, continue to affect a lot of people. That's my that's my pitch for the future. Ugh, yeah. I just was going to quickly say from the publisher's perspective, when Comixology existed, Cloudscape could upload a PDF and it would magically turn into something that had guided view. And then we just, it was available for sale and it was great. And then Amazon bought Comixology and all of our pre-existing books are gone and we have to upload them again. But when you upload them, guess what? Now you get the fun of doing the guided view yourself. I have to do it. It's my job to highlight each panel and show it how to navigate page by page. So like they've offset that labor. So I guess Comixology used to pay someone to do that. That person doesn't have a job. And now I'm doing that job so that I can sell my digital comic for like, I don't know, 15 cents or whatever. Um, 50%. Comixology (laughs) takes 50% of the price of this digital (laughs) item that has requires no shelf space or storage space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel this too with uh, like, I'm trying to run a Kickstarter right now, by the way, I have a Kickstarter for my book. You should back it. But Would it still be running when this episode comes out. I don't know. Maybe not, but uh, yeah, it's the, the, the death of social media and the fragmentation of sh- social media has definitely been a factor in how many people I can get to know that I'm running a Kickstarter. Like so many people have left Twitter and, you know, fair enough. I'm, I would like to leave Twitter as soon as possible too, but like, where do I find those people now? Like I have like six different social media things and it's just not the same. Like that community, that sense of like being able to just know what's going on in comics is not what it used to be. 100%. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I mean, this is, yeah, this is this is the big thing that I think is so counter to the end of Scott McCloud's book where he talks about digital, right? Is that the internet's a unifier and now we're in this space where the internet's so fragmented. And yeah, it's just like, even to let, I mean, I don't know. It's just, yeah, even to let people know, like even to let people know that like you're going camping on the weekend or something. It's like you, you like tweet, oh i'm gonna go camping you post photos of your trip and then you come back and then your friend is like oh what did you do over the weekend and you're like what why are we even on social media like nobody nobody even sees anything (laughs) Uh, kathleen i want to make sure we don't miss you this round oh yeah no 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 i'm just i'm just you know listening to my favorite podcast (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, no, 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 totally. I, I, I agree with what's what's being said. It uh makes me super sad that <laughs> you know digital delivery is in such like a dire place when it shouldn't be like this. Like it should be so easy to just be able to to read things digitally, and that's just not um yeah, no, I, I agree with what's being said. So I do want to put a little caveat on this one is that as I was thinking about this one, I think it is something that we can do something about. I think even us as the trade waiters is a positive force against this trend Um, and other mini marketplaces, the return of web rings, the return of like links, you know, if you Mm -hmm. see something you like, say something about it, you know, we can bring this infrastructure back. Um, the technology and all the tools have now been invented and a lot of them are basically free or very cheap. We just need to 
decide that that's what we want to do with our community. Okay, so next topic is uh, Webtoon Convergence. Yeah, Webtoon Convergence. That's not like I could have phrased that better, but basically like I think this was my negative pr prediction, which is just that I, similar to Comixology, uh, I just feel like we're in this age where like everything's getting consolidated, everything's being bought up by something else. So like Webtoon, to my mind right now, is providing the closest thing to that sort of marketplace for comics, that sort of that online comic book store, which is what Comixology used to be. And I don't know, this is just the pessimist in me. I just, I'm like, I'm sure they'll get, Webtoon will get bought out by, I don't know, Facebook or something. And then suddenly you'll have to subscribe to get tokens to like things and yeah, creators will all be vetted and it'll only be, you know, I don't know. It's, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have a um, a solid <laughs> solid vision. I just feel like Webtoon seems like it's the best place right now to get noticed in comics. So then no doubt someone's going to buy it up and turn it into something horrible. Uh, as Cory Doctorow could talk about more, I'm sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but that's sort of, that was my my negative prediction is that just like Webtoon will also just end up becoming more of a walled garden that will be inaccessible and unpleasant like everything else online. <laughs> I mean, I, I get your trepidation because that has happened to literally everything else on the internet so far. So why wouldn't it also happen to Webtoon? But like, I don't think we're there yet. We don't know for sure, 100% that that's what's going to happen. I do really like Webtoon's interface. Uh, I think a lot of the reason that people have migrated there is because it's just so much easier to find and share comics. Uh, and there's problems with this all being on one website. There's, I think, big problems with it all being on one website and there being the one site to get comics from. I mean, not literally because there's also Tapas, but it's the same concept. Uh, a duopoly is not better than a monopoly. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that that in of itself can become a problem too, because I know people that maintain a tapas and a webtoon, and it's just like, well, that's a lot of work. Like, what we, I mean, again, there's no capitalism is the real problem, because really, what <laughs> we need is like a nonprofit aggregator where like everyone puts their infinite canvas comics on this one thing. And then it's just where you go to find comics, but like there's no financial incentive to push certain comics to the front. There's no, yeah, there's no competition needed. So then you can have all the comics in one location. That's, that's, that's my thoughts is there's, there's good things about Webtoon. I cannot guarantee that they will stay that way forever. And my only suggestion as a solution is also have your own website. Yeah. Like I've had my website for uh, 20 years now and uh, live journal being bought out by Russian investors and uh, <laughs> Twitter being bought by Elon Musk hasn't prevented me from having a website. Right. Even though no one goes there because it's a website and not webtoon. Yeah. But I, it oh. is, it is still so important to have a website. Um, as a creator just because like you never know who's gonna remember something about you and try to google it and like if you're only on social media sites that's going to be impossible to find whereas like through a search engine for the most part whereas if you have like you know various things on your website it's easier easier to have things come up but yeah it's all it's all flawed but yeah whatever <laughs> someone's like a, a young creator is like oh, i don't know do i need a website i'm like yes absolutely 100 percent. i get so much work through my website um like <laughs> yeah so yeah i i think that webtoon has done a lot for broadening out comics in a new direction to a new audience and also to a new context like the 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 what webtoon has done to bring it to a mobile phone and like a new 
kind of emotional time trigger to be like, oh, I'm waiting for the bus or this is my commute. I'm going to read a couple comics. That wasn't necessarily a part of people's habits before. Uh, however, I am quite opposed to like the strict nature, like the, the editorial control that they have. Basically, like I, I'm leery for any context where they can just pull the plug whenever they want, you know, they can arbitrarily decide that, you know, you were being promoted before, but now you're not, you know, or they set the rules and they have total control over it. Uh, you know, seize the means to production. <laughs> so do, do make your own website, even if it's a harder slog. I mean, I, I cross promote on Webtoon as, you know, some of you others do as well. And I think it's okay for that. Um, but it's, it's not going to be the path to our future as an industry. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to learn some things from Webtoon along the way that will make better things in the future. But uh, yeah, I think that's a good takeaway is this is not, this is not our shining future on the hill or whatever. <laughs> Next topic is audience. Um, yeah. So that's me. So this is like extremely specific and also like maybe most relevant to like me and my work but like as I was mentioning in the last episode like we are sort of like in traditional book publishing in North America um so that's like publishers who have traditionally published like prose books but have created graphic novel imprints within the past you know decade or whatever we're in a middle grade boom so we're in a period of time where it is Publishers are very eager to put their money towards books, uh, graphic novels created for audiences aged 9 to 12. And being at any sort of boom, like, that's going to end. There's going to be a contraction of the middle grade sphere, which I absolutely dread because <laughs> that's uh, where I'm working currently. But my hope when this happens is that the contraction of the middle grade sphere will come with an expansion moving out into young adult, which is an underserved audience currently in North American comics. And hopefully this expansion will be strategically created to capture these aging comics readers as they age out of the middle grade sort of sphere. Uh, similarly, I would love to see an expansion specifically into the new adult audience which is a sort of like newer newer term for a section of comic readers, which is sort of like early 20s. So uh, yeah, I'd really love to see an expansion into both young adult and new adult uh, with mainstream publishing um, to diversify just like the audiences that we're capturing and the amounts of stories that we're telling within this medium, because I think it is quite quite narrow what we have currently it's mostly sorry it's mostly like indian smaller publishers focusing on those audiences and i want to see it more yeah i i agree with you that it's a little concerning that publishing doesn't seem to be ahead of this wave uh ahead of this very inevitable transition but i for one am very excited about you know group after group of avid readers who are learning about comics from the many talented creators such as yourself who are putting out middle grade work for them to read so i'm i'm excited about this audience yeah and i think one positive thing is that i don't think that audience goes away if mainstream publishers miss the boat at the start like let's say worst case scenario the the middle grade bubble bursts scholastic runs out of money and all these other publishers go out of business or they're bought by someone who doesn't care about books. And then there's just not these new books being produced. I think the readers are still there. Like the readers we've like, we being comics has built this audience. Like every kid I teach has read comics. That wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. Cause I teach like this age range and they're going to have positive memories about the their comics reading experience. And at any point in the future, when some publisher figures out, hey, there's a bunch of readers here, like they're going to be able to take advantage of that audience. 
Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that that's maybe the biggest positive of the middle grade boom right now is that we're laying a good foundation where there's going to be people a lot more comics literate who are, can become a potential reader in the future. Because I think that, I mean, I think about, you know, in my family, you know, all my, my siblings, my parents buy every comic I publish because it's me and they, I publish a comic, but it's like, my parents are just like, yeah, I don't know. You seem to have made a comic, I guess. Like it doesn't connect with them the way that, you know, people my age who've read comics get connected to it. You know, it's, there's like a gap. There's an illiteracy in comics for some people. And so I think that like, that's one big positive is that if you have all these kids who have fond memories of reading comics all through middle grade, they're hopefully going to be more inclined to pick up comics in the future. Yeah, for sure. Uh, next topic. Now, now we're talking about creator rights. Yeah. So this is not so much a prediction as I guess, like my hope for the future, <laughs> which is, um, and again, this is coming from like my own biases of someone like working with sort of like mainstream like book publishers. And this has been, you know, a conversation that I think that's been very at the forefront of the culture recently. But I really want to see a mainstream industry that allows creators to actually live off the work that they're making and not have to juggle multiple day jobs on top of making a book. Um, because I think that capitalism and corporate greed is killing every creator like working right now and is holding back too many people and especially marginalized voices from being able to have viable careers um like this does not feel like an industry you can have a career in anymore and i'm very sad for all the incredible artists who don't get to develop their voices over a career because the industry simply will not pay them enough to live um and they don't have you know a spouse with a steady job or a family to finance uh, when things are rough and to like take that bet on them so that they can have a career. And I think that if we don't improve the conditions that cartoonists are working in, uh, the industry is doomed to crumble and is doomed to be stuck in a sort of arrested development where it will not and in many ways I think refuses to invest the time and money in the maturation of creative voices and thus um, sort of like refusing to invest in the maturation of the creative work that shapes us all. Because I think there's a lot of creators who get to currently do one or two books in the middle grade sphere and then they burn out and they cannot continue to work in this industry because they are not making enough money from book advances. They are not paying out their advance. They are not getting royalties and they just can't balance that with having another full-time job because the industry asks you to work as fast as possible um, in a way that is uh, not sustainable based on the amount of money that they pay you. So like, yeah, I guess like, what does it say when we have these new voices who burn out after one book or two books and there's just like no longevity in those creative voices and like everyone's first book is weak, is a little bit weak for the most part, you know, like there are certain people whose first books you're like, dang, that's amazing. But I think the industry is taking a lot of creators in their 20s and like, I don't know, kind of eating them alive a little bit. And then you don't get to see, we don't get to see what these creators are going to make when they're 40, when they're 50, when they're 60. There's just like, I don't know. It's, it's just like, I think a lot about like, what does it mean when a lot of graphic novels for a particular audience are like only being made by people in their 20s or like the majority are people in their 20s? Um, like, where is the maturity of voice, the nuance and the skill of storytelling that comes when someone has been working in a field for like a decade, for 20 years, for 30 years? And I think if things don't change in the industry, like we're just not going to get the wealth of stories that we could from people who can see like a full career within this industry i don't know so yeah. that was a very long way to say like <laughs> my hope for the future is that i would really like to see um more equitable pay for creators yeah a hundred percent i mean who's who's our next will eisner you know like i think about like there's a guy who drew comics until he died basically mm -hmm. and charles schultz like made a career drew peanuts until he died basically um like 
do we have any other people currently working that you really think they're going to still be doing it when they're yeah like 70 80 years old yeah, you I think lose it's... a lot of lose a lot of people like a lot of people oh. like I, I think it's yeah it's also like just very hard on the body and I think about I've been thinking a lot about like um uh sort of like prose authors who get to have like like they're incredibly successful but they get to have these like multi-decade careers and I think like just the fact of comics being so hard on the body to produce like it is physically much more painful to create a graphic novel than it is to type a novel and how that also like inhibits careers in many ways. It's like, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. know. And I think like this, this challenge, like not only is it relying heavily on uh, a younger group of creators, I feel like a lot of voices are stopped at the gate just yeah. because like they can't even make it work even for one book. And we, I, I agree with you where it's a very acute problem. We're losing a lot of voices. I see it reflected in a lot of other spheres uh, I think this is a big reason that the the actors are on strike right now is mm -hmm. part of this exact same problem. You know, it's like you have to be a struggling actor before you can be a successful actor. And this whole like struggling actor phase is starting to chew people up and spit them out. Uh, you saw the same thing in games. You know, there's actually a lot of pushback where people are like, we don't want AAA games every year. We actually want smaller games with worse graphics that take longer to produce so that people don't burnout in the industry so like ah. this this treadmill of people in their 20s is also very prevalent in um in games and in tech in general to a degree so i think it's a it's a major aspect of our culture that needs to be examined all right so next um i want to talk a little bit about libraries so i'm sure you have all seen as i have many many news stories about uh, books being banned and books being removed from libraries and libraries being entirely shut down. And it's all really depressing. Uh, but I want to put a positive spin on this. Hear me out. Uh, I think the difference now compared to similar book bans in the past is that comics has support from institutions and particularly libraries. Uh, like I am doing university courses right now to become a school librarian. Great timing, I know. But <laughs> um, it's really interesting to see how there is built into the system this expectation that if you are a librarian, right from the first day you start to learn your job, you are taught the importance of readers' rights, that you are on the side of free speech, like actual free speech, and you are on the side of kids having the right to read books, and specifically books that reflect the real world, that aren't full of lies, that reflect the readers themselves, and that this is just built into the way that the um, the profession is set up as. So like tw even 20 years ago, I don't think that was the case. Like when I was a kid in school, there were very few comics in my school library. There was like Garfield and Tintin. And maybe some of those Tintins couldn't, like maybe should, they shouldn't have been there. <laughs> but we didn't in the past have the, like comics didn't have the support of uh, the, the sort of institutional support. This like vanguard of people who would, uh, they're not doing this for us. They're not doing this for comics. They're doing it for readers, but comics is the beneficiary of having this like adamant defense. Like every library institution you can find is very much on board with this. And, and I think it's important that it's not just individual librarians. Like you could look at individual librarians, you could find like heroic librarians who are fighting against censorship uh, and like putting books into the hands of kids and have like heard all of the educational research about how important comics can be uh, to readers. But I think there's a, that, that the existence of those people doesn't guarantee like the support from the profession. I think the difference is that the profession itself is set up 
to encourage that kind of behavior from librarians. And however, however many librarians in their world there are who just don't really care about comics, they don't get it. It doesn't matter because they know their job and their job is to defend readers. And I think that's big. I think that's a huge development. And that doesn't necessarily guarantee success in all the current battles going on. Uh, I just saw something today where Texas has banned the American Library Association, which is, <laughs> that's the Library Association. How do you ban the Library Association? But the reason they're doing this is because if you go to the library, the, the ALA website, it's very clear where they stand and they stand in opposition to the current Texas government. So I, I don't know. I think that's a big deal to have to have that. Yeah. Well, libraries are rad. Uh, <laughs> libraries are the best. Um, one of the few truly good things that government brought to the people is libraries. <laughs> Just a net good for people. <laughs> I think we wouldn't have expected to have librarians on the front line for our intellectual freedom. But I think we could not have had a better group of people. Like librarians are amazing at what they do. They are very stalwart in defending uh, your right to learn, your right to access information and your right to know the truth. And I think that's, uh, it's an opportunity for this profession to shine. And I'm really sorry that they've had to have been thrust into this role and they deserve our support. It's uh, trying times, trying yeah. times. I don't know, there's like deeper cultural shifts that, I mean, are they're affecting that the censorship movement and they're things that we, as individuals, it can feel kind of daunting, but I don't know. I do think that, yeah, like there's, there's still a lot of good folks that are really fighting the good fight. And uh, I don't know, I think, um, yeah, I think it's important that we try to support as much as possible. I, I mean, I live near our downtown library and I've been trying to make a point of going in and just using it and taking advantage of it and making it clear. Like, was it my, um, my partner was saying to me, when in doubt, check it out. <laughs> I like that. Out, if you check the book out, it just shows that there's need for this to exist. So, you know, she's like, even if you not sure you're going to read that book, like just check it out anyways. Cause then the worst thing that happens is you re return it unread and then it's still, it helps the library, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just definitely support your local library. <laughs> the best way to, to support this fight is to, yeah, use your library. Show your community that this is a space that matters to you. And then make that a space that you can be proud of. And I would say also pay attention to what's happening at your local uh, library board and your local school board because all of the fights that we've seen always start at that level. And that is by far the easiest venue to push back. Like if you're physically in the room when a school board is saying, oh, I don't know, maybe we should ban all these books that someone from another town said that we should ban. Like if you're the one who's physically there and you're actually from that community, you can push back and you can say, no, uh, here's why I think that's a bad idea. And you will be listened to more than a librarian or a teacher will be listened to because like we work there. And so they don't listen to us. Yeah. And your <laughs> voice can go a long way at this local level. Uh, I think like the, the proportion of people who do show up and, you know, the impact that each of those individual voices have, like it's probably one of the best ways that you can express democracy in like a super direct way. Next topic is bespoke comics. Jeff, what yeah. is a bespoke comic? Um, I basically am sort of thinking in terms of like an artisanal, handcrafted, bespoke comic. Essentially, just like an old, good old fashioned 
mini comic that's been folded and stapled by hand by the artist who wrote and drew that same comic um, with variations in between, like lino print, like, uh, you know, hand stitched, like basically, I don't know, I, my prediction, this is a prediction. Uh, my prediction is that we've got all these digital tools, digital art. We've seen how these big corporations will just flip a switch and like whole TV shows will like disappear overnight because it's a tax write-off. And so I just think that people are starting to see some real value in physical objects again. And so I think that actual beautiful like well-crafted books are going to have a resurgence. I not only actually mini comics, I think just like nice, like not just like a trade paperback in color, but just like, you know, like a really beautiful book, like something in a slip case, like Chris Ware's building stories or, you know, anything else Chris Ware has ever published. Um, but just like, you know, fabric covers, um, like, the tactile nature of comics. Like, I really think that when people truly value something, they're going to want to have a physical copy. And you're, you're seeing this on like Webtoon when there's a really popular Webtoon series, it'll, they'll do a print edition, right? So I don't know. I think, uh, I think people are starting, uh, that's my prediction. I, I My prediction is I think we're going to see an uptick in beautiful books and physical media, uh, possibly not just comics. Because uh, I mean, if you buy some of these TV shows on DVD, they can't take that away from you yet. So I don't know. I just think that we're going to see more, more bespoke handcrafted art. Like there's more value in just seeing the hands of the creator involved. So I think the fact that you folded those pages by hand actually is going to mean something to people in the future. Yeah, that's my prediction. I, I actually agree with you. I think we see the same trend reflected in the resurgence of vinyl uh, for music, right? You know, people want to have a little bit more of an intimate relationship to the work that does matter to them. Uh, and I also, I agree with this prediction. I have been somewhat orienting myself around this idea. Um, not so much in the like beautification of it, but more in like the limited nature of the experience. Um, I think access to infinity has, has gone through the roof. Like it was uh, startlingly easy to print thousands of books, which is not something that I want to repeat. Uh, I'm actually investing more in a more direct, a more personal, a more ephemeral experience. And I think investing into that act of like personal creation where it's like, if I make only 20 of something and then it's gone forever, I would rather invest in that experience than in, uh, you know, the, the 50,000 run of something. Yeah, I totally agree with this too. I think, <laughs> I think it's Daryl Ao is always saying online. He's always like, we got it. We're returning to zines guys. Zines are where it's at. This is, this is the future of everything. <laughs> and I'm to believe with him. I think sort of that idea of, I don't know, like keeping the personal in something, even in just like the act of creation of like it's small scale and I stapled it together myself is really powerful and really connects people. And zine fairs are where the good stuff's at. Like, I think, I think more and more people are going to appreciate that, you know? Yeah. First, I want to say that I have, I've started a zine club at my school. So I'm getting That's kids. That's so cute. Oh, I love this. Nice. It's very funny because no one knows how to pronounce the word zine. So when I write on the announcements that go over the PA system for the whole school on Tuesdays, when we do the zine club, uh, people keep saying that there's Zine Club because whoever's reading the announcement doesn't know what that is. I've heard this from even older people. So like a lot of teens and a lot of kids on the internet who are making these like fan scenes, they, if you meet them in real life, they're like, oh, it's a really cool Zine. And I, <laughs> here's, here's my like uh, 
I'm adding on to your prediction. I think the pronunciation sign is going to supplant Z. Not in my school, because I'm going to tell, I'm, I'm telling all the kids the right way to say it. Oh, man. I wrote a whole book about zines and i did specifically put in it that like zine is short for magazine <laughs> yeah, well, that's what i tell people yeah yeah right and away will... i'll be like do we know what this word means it's short <laughs> for know magazine. what a magazine is yeah but i uh, i think they still do they're not that far in the past and but... i will say kathleen that like i have thought about doing some kind of comics club or art club in the past but it wasn't until I read your book that had a whole section about zines. I thought, you know what? I should just do that. <laughs> Aww. Well, thank you. I'm glad that could inspire you to do it. Because it was inspired by a zine club I was in. And there you um, go. That's the so, great thing about zines is there. there's this oral tradition of them. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're the good stuff. They're the past. They're the present. They're the future. Yeah, some of my favorite art objects that I have ever owned have been very small handmade zines. I have a less than 12 page photocopied zine of Smile made by Raina Telgemeier before Scholastic had ever heard of her. Uh, and it's one of my most precious art objects. I show that, I do bring that into to, uh, classes to show off that this exists. Uh, but deliberately, because like, if you know, this is how Raina Telgemeier got started out, you could do the same. Yeah, when I when I moved, I got rid of a lot of books, but I didn't get rid of a single zine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't. I uh, cannot get rid of any of my zines. It's like books can come and go. But the zines and mini comics that I pick up at fairs, like going all the way back to TCAF 2007 I just cannot get rid of them yeah I love flipping through my scene collection it's just like every single one is unique the sizes are different you know what they say is super different and it can be it's where the most experimental work is done okay speaking of experimentation uh, I'm glad my scheme to put these two topics back to back worked out yeah. Uh, Cam, tell us about uh, experimentation. Yeah, so further to to the experimentation or experimental nature, or I guess the experiments that are enabled by the format of the zine, I don't think that we are anywhere near the end of our experimentation in the form. I think we are going to see so Scott started to speak a little bit about this. I feel like we've made some dipping our toes into the water of, you know, trying to break out of the experimentation in the form. I, I think we ain't seen nothing yet. I've seen signals on the, the deep, dark parts of the internet. I think we're going to see some really, really interesting stuff come up in the next decade or two. Things that are going to uh, surprise you, things that are going to make you question, and we're, we'll be having debates of like, is this a comic or not? So, in fact, I feel that this bounces off uh, Kathleen's comments about the audience. I think we have this gigantic boom in literacy. We have this gigantic boom of people who are experimenting, making comics themselves for the first time. And because of where we're at now with the web, like we have a whole generation that's gone through like exposure to what different comics could be. I think we're going to start to see a lot of experimentations in media and format where, you know, it's a comic, but then there's a section where it's a chat log like Homestuck, you know, sometimes Homestuck was a game. Maybe there's a game and then sometimes it's a comic, you know, we see a web comic, but also it's an Instagram story you know, live interaction that you're having. Maybe it's a, a, a primarily a live experience, but there is a comic that tells the lore. I feel like this type of back and forth is going to start to happen more and more broadly. Uh, and from people who don't necessarily care that what they're making is comics and don't necessarily care that they're expanding the form. They're just going to do it intuitively. Uh, I also think that on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, there's going to be people dragging back really weird old methods 
and putting that into comics. You know, uh, Jeff spoke about lino block in comics. Like that was kind of an out there idea if you thought about it 20 years ago. I've seen people make comics out of old Game Boy color cartridges, you know, Game Boy camera, right? I think we're going to see some some interesting work that's going to shake up what comics can be. That's my prediction. Oh, full agree. Yeah, I think it's it's very exciting to know that there are like so many people studying their comics literacy with such like a wide variety of comics so young and how that will expand what they can conceive of comics being also to your point of like using I don't know like older methods like coming back I do have a Leroy lettering set that I am dying to create a small project to use it with (laughs) um, which is the old like drafting tools that um, EC Comics specifically used as a standard for lettering (laughs) like one of these days I'm gonna have time to actually use that in a project Wow. I, I, for one, look forward to the homestuckification in our future. I I often have ideas like, oh, that would be cool. Wouldn't it be great to have like something that was like half prose and half comics and, and things like that. And I think it's hard to get that to work and like, good luck pitching that to a publisher. But uh, yeah, like I really, I feel like 20 years ago when I read Understanding Comic, I was maybe more against the idea of mixed media comics because comics seemed so fragile like what if we lose this thing i love this thing what if it gets lost in like the convergence which everyone was talking about the convergence of media back then which didn't really happen at least not in the way people said Mm -hmm. uh but these days like no we we have this much firmer base of people who know comics people who love comics people who understand comics like you can you can just do stuff and not have to worry about that because comics is safe. No matter any of the things you've talked about this episode, some of these dire predictions, like I don't imagine any scenario where comics goes away. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's funny because that's something I, I was remembering just debates about what what is a comic if a comic is on a screen if you're looking at one panel at a time, is it still a comic? And like now I'm, I just feel like, yeah, as you say about a firmer a base, it's just like, no, like it's, it doesn't matter. Like if you're telling a story with words and pictures, like, and then, and then the next thing is a video, it's fine. It doesn't ruin it. It's, it's still a comic. You used comic elements as a framing device to lead into the video or the prose or the game or, you know, like it's, it's mixed media. It's fine. Yeah. I, I actually feel excited about comics again. This is yeah. good. <laughs> and thank you, Scott McCloud, for giving us all a framework from which we can understand comics and its potential and its indestructible nature, I think. Yeah, like I really feel like in all three books in that series that he made, uh, I, I feel like the the biggest strength of it is the sort of the theoretical framework which is probably the thing he's most excited about because that's the thing he spends most time on of like, what is a comic conceptually? And so much, like when you hear people talk about comics, they'll quote Scott McCloud without even necessarily realizing that's what they're doing. Like anytime someone uses the word sequential art, I guess it's Will Eisner who started sequential art, but I think it was much more widely spread by Scott McCloud. Like that, that sort of understanding of what comics are and can be and what like how they're put together is like so valuable yeah i mean i don't know i think that like he he takes flack for labeling things you know and i i think i remember with making comics he had his like categories of artists and like a lot of artists complained about that too right but i mean i don't know it's even if sometimes the language doesn't take like it's very useful to build that vocabulary to try and like define things like I I you know you guys were talking about the lines that connect the panels and like Scott McCloud had a whole extra digital chapter of reinventing comics where he was talking about trails so that he's dubbed them trails that's his word trails connect the panels now I don't know other people might not use that term It, it definitely didn't take off 
but like i appreciate that he took the time to be like here's this new thing in comics what are we going to call it we should have a name for it you know and so like building up that vocabulary even if there's people that sneer at it and reject it i think that vocabulary is important because then you can have these conversations right when when it's just comics you know it's it's really hard to like dig in we're like when Scott takes the time to like really like define these things, even if you disagree, it gives you like a reference point where you can sort of then discuss, you know, and even if you don't want to put yourself in one of the boxes he creates for cartoonists to exist in, like there's still different approaches to making comics that are being presented in each of those boxes. So you can still have a conversation about the merits of that, you know, very valuable work he's done. And I, I would honestly we talked before about the institutional integration. I really do think that like understanding comics in particular was just so important for building, I don't know, a bulkhead for like other people to like climb on top of. So it's like comics can be literature. Comics can be art. Scott gave them this vocabulary where then a university professor can be like, Hey, I could teach a course about comics look there's a textbook and everything you know uh <laughs> any other final thoughts about the future of comics uh so i want to add on to what you've just said jeff about like the importance of scott creating a bulkhead that others can glom onto uh Raymina Yi has been doing some uh, work i was literally to just googling yeah. to find that i yeah. also wanted to bring great great so like <laughs> other yeah. people are now finally taking up the mantle and going to start expanding on that theoretical framework and i'm very excited to see what Raymina comes up with yeah like she's creating this uh list of categories of comics tools i guess you could call it well, I'll, I'll put a link in our show notes. We said we would do shout outs one more time. I, after all this talk about the crazy new worlds of, of uh, where comics can go, I'm going to shout out Alpha Flight by Marvel Comics uh, because it's being written by Ed Brisson, former Vancouver, uh, former Vancouver independent comics legend. It just launched. So I think it only just dropped issue one, but I know that Ed, I think, has always wanted to write Alpha Flight for his entire life. And so I'm just very pleased for him to have uh, achieved, uh, I think, every Canadian cartoonist my age's dream, which is to write Alpha Flight and do it right for once. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to shout out a TV show based on a comic i haven't actually read the comic but i've been watching doom patrol and it's a lot of fun uh like it's within the sort of the dc universe which i'm not a big fan of a lot of the other other shows but i feel like this one finds exactly the right balance at least for me between uh superhero weirdness and characters who are kind of not that great at being superheroes <laughs> that's that's my jam that's what i want good and uh speaking of jam i'm jam you can find my work at jamminess.com uh and i wanted to shout out in the interests of like fragmentation of marketplace if that's something that you want to push back against check out the short box comics fair it's happening in october 2023 and hopefully in octobers of the future but it's a great place to find a lot of digital zines you can buy and just like see a, a, a cornucopia of all sorts of work from around the world. Uh, spend a few bucks here and there. I, everything but the processing fees goes straight to the artists and you can come out with some really interesting and innovative work. I'm Kathleen and I'd like to shout out a like collective, I guess, that I've been sort of like really enjoying the work of lately which is uh fruit salad comics um they've put out two anthologies and it's just a bunch of friends coming together and putting some anthologies together one of the anthologies is themed around nightmares and monsters and horror and the other anthology is um, called kaleidoscope and every artist in the book was given a different color 
and got to make whatever story they wanted inspired by the color. But uh, I'm really excited to see where this little collective goes because I think they've got some really fun, interesting uh, voices within it and each creator is doing something totally different. Yeah, so that's who I'm shouting out. All right. Thanks for joining us, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. And let's here's to another hundred years of comics. <laughs> Trade readers over and over a hundred years forever. <laughs> that's, that's why we're here celebrating, right? Can't yeah. believe yeah. it's been a hundred years. <laughs> it's so exciting. I'm very much looking forward to future books with y'all. <laughs> All right. That's it. Hooray! The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. Uh, you can find us in many places online, including SoundCloud and uh, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and places like that. And thanks for listening. Yeah. Bye.